Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out www.nhte.net. Be sure to sign up for the email newsletter there, which is quick and easy. All that's required is an email address. We are coming to you from Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out on the web at www.cbpro, as in Crystal Blue Productions, cbpro.net. Be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. We are thrilled to be on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Lots of great guests on Now Hear This Entertainment, or as I've taken to calling it, NHTE. Joining me today here in the studio, my guest wrote the book, The Insights Collection, Insights from the Engine Room. He now resides in Florida, but worked for many, many years in the UK with clients that ranged from REM to The Police to Bob Marley, Matchbox 20, Elvis Costello, and Peter Gabriel, among many others. His career spanned more than 30 years and even included being asked to serve as the publicist for David Bowie's Earthling Tour. He inspires audiences all over the world as a speaker. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Tony Michaelidis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, Tony. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in to do this today. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, We always start off the show by having the guest talk about an original song of theirs that we played during the intro, but that's not the case today with you. You are not a recording artist. I wonder, all your years being a promoter, did you ever do any singing, songwriting, or playing an (laughs) instrument? I did. When I was about 16 or 17, I was in a band, like every kid in the north of England was. (laughs) Um, I wanted to be the professional footballer. Or um, be in a band. I mean, what else do you want to do when you're that age? And then get a job with Manchester United. So I pursued with the band. And um, I basically was the bass player because um, I had the largest room to rehearse in. <laughs> so that's the truth behind that. And then I, uh, I left the band because I was lousy at it. And I decided to manage um, the band. So managing the band for a band that had no gigs and weren't going to get recording contract was quite an easy gig. You played with them for how long? All day. Uh, but was this a year, five years? A couple of years. They were mates, okay. mates from school, you know. A couple uh-huh. could play pretty well. We had a great little drummer and a good guitar player. But um, I was my, my best job in the band was naming the names of the bands, you know, Dwarf Cornell, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> but see, I like this story already because, you know, people never consider that, say, for instance, in sports, they never think about people who choose to go into, say, in baseball, I'm going to become an umpire, you know, or to some extent they think about coaching, but so here's someone that, yeah, I started out as a musician, but eventually you're drawn to actually the promotion side and say, eh, that's okay, I don't necessarily need to be a... None of it's linked, trust me. I mean, after, after kind of school, I went to um, I went to college, I think in England called Further Education College, which is basically people who are done with school and not ready for work. So I kind of had a couple of years as um, doing a course in business studies, which is kind of my least professional skill. <laughs> and then um, I got a lousy job, and then um, I applied for a job, which was in the local paper by accident, and um, I didn't get it initially, and then they wrote back to me after six months and said, do you still fancy it? So I started my career in the music industry in 1974, selling records out the back of a van for £25 a week. (laughs) But I didn't kind of... I mean, my idea was... I mean, music was my life. I kind of, you know, I grew up in an amazing time listening to... You know, in the Zeppelins and Floyds and then the Dillons and everybody from this end and Joni Mitchells and Neil Youngs and, and what have you. So my education in music was amazing. I needed a job to buy records and go on gigs. Um, so getting a job in the music industry was was pure luck. Because the careers officers at school don't actually, um, you know, train you for things like that and kind of, you know, point you in that direction. They send you to go to work in banks and insurance companies and become lawyers. Um, but my idea was that I didn't have a job in the music industry, so if I don't get it, I still don't have a job in the music industry. But I got it, and it kind of... My you say, job became you say you an got extension. It. Was it that job that they called you six months later and said, are you still interested? Yeah. What, what was that? It was a job for, for a folk and jazz label called Transatlantic, which um, was based in London, and I was selling... Um, in the days, remember when places had things called record shops? Mm-hmm. We used to buy vinyl, right? 
I was the guy that was kind of selling the records into the shops. And it was great because I did the major uh, cities in the north of England, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, Birmingham, Newcastle and stuff. So I used to go in every week and I'd go through the racks, find out what they'd sold and kind of top them up, you know. And it was great because, you know, it was the early days of Virgin Records. Virgin was Virgin Rags. So the first Virgin Record stores sold clothes upstairs and records downstairs. Wow, it was cool, it. and it was an amazing time because it was kind of the overspill of the 60s and the music industry was a great place. And obviously in the 70s, the Elton Johns and a lot of the guitar bands were coming through and stuff. So it was my job was an extension of my hobby, basically. And it sounds to me like you were pretty young at that point. I was 20. It sounds like a pretty decent job to have for, for a 20-year-old. It was a great job. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, my story is ending up working with people whose records I'd bought as a kid. I mean, when I... Are done with sales. I got offered a job in uh, Ireland in 1978, which was equally weird because here's a label I grew up buying by bands like Free and Spooky Tooth and Traffic. And then all of a sudden I'm working with them. So not only are they going to give me all their records for free, they're going to pay me. So how weird is that? So I go from kind of, you know, growing up listening to Traffic Records as a teenager and working with Steve Winwood. Yeah, it, uh, it reminds me of, of my early years growing up as, as a little boy and, and watching the Buffalo Sabres was my favorite hockey team. And then when I graduated from college, I got hired by the Buffalo Sabres. And I thought, this is crazy. My favorite hockey team that I watched growing up, now they're going to pay me. Like you said, they're going to pay me to work for these guys. That's exactly. Crazy. So it's, it's kind of living the dream. You know, I have no complaints. And it, in those days, it was great. I mean, like I said, I got paid 25 pounds a week, like 40 bucks a week. But, you know, I mean, I kind of was living at home at the time and... Um, you know, all my friends, the, the, the interesting thing was all my friends who went to the same gigs and bought the same records all had access to the same local newspaper. It's like applying for, mm. a, it's like going home from work and picking up the Tampa Bay Times or the Tampa Tribune and reading through the classifieds. That was the equivalent in Manchester. Yeah. So if you'd have done that and got a job here, then all your friends would have had access to the same paper. But they all went on to kind of the proper jobs of butchers and mechanics <laughs> and insurance clerks and bank managers well, and things. But, but like I say, the proper jobs, what, what, what parents at the time say, you need to get a proper job. Exactly. You can't be fooling around with this music stuff. That's not going to go anywhere. Well, my mum was okay. I mean, my, my dad actually died a week before I got the job, but mm. my mum, um, I kind of was at a moving out period, but I stayed at home. My mum was really supportive. I mean, she was, she was a yoga teacher for 42 years, so she kind of, you know, she was teaching yoga before ro- yoga was trendy, so. <laughs> she was teaching yoga before it was yoga. <laughs> yeah, before Madonna made it trendy and sting. <laughs> uh, Tony, your book is called The Insights Collection, Insights from the Engine Room. On the cover, there's a quote from Paul McGinnis, the manager of U2. The quote says, it was in those crucial formative years that we were grateful for the passionate belief Tony showed in the band and for the personal and professional relationship that was built, end quote. That, that's a pretty darn powerful endorsement to have on the cover of a book. First, let's just have you talk about the book itself, how long it took to put it together, maybe any challenges you faced. It's 190 pages, so this isn't something that comes together just like that. Well, it is, actually. First of all, the kind of the quote from Paul McGuinness really helped with Homeland Security as well to get me in the country, because that was one of the testimonials I used. Um, the, um, yeah, the book, I fully should say that, Bruce, actually, because I, I was living in Tampa at the time, and um, I had some friends that said, write a book. I said, what do I want to write a book for? Who's going to buy a book I write? I said, all my friends are going to be phoning me from the UK and expecting me to kind of send them a freebie. It's going to cost me a fortune in posting them, in postage. Um, so I was kind of relented, but I was at the time I was kind of not, I wasn't, when I say I wasn't really going anywhere. I was kind of, I was living here, but I'd only kind of, I was bumbling along, so to speak, like not quite sure what I was going to do. Um, and I wrote a blog every day. So all of a sudden I had a blog, blog with like 30,000 words. Wow. So wow. that kind of became the basis for a book. So I actually wrote a book in three months. Wow. Um, And it's incredible, really, because I sell more copies of my book now than I ever did. I mean, I I ended up, I got a local publisher because I didn't think, well, I thought that even though I don't play and I don't sing, I kind of think like an artist. So the thing is, I was thinking in the same way as if you were a, you know, a band or a a singer, there's no point sending your music to a record label nowadays because they don't listen to unsolicited material, Mm -hmm. you know. So Mm -hmm. some of the great bands will get away because they don't know where it's coming from. I thought the same with publishing. Who's going to read a manuscript by an unpublished author? Sure. 
and I was told since that you know you'd be surprised and and then I thought well I don't want a literary agent because I'm going to get them turning around and meeting them and they say well we need more sex drugs and rock and roll and I'm going to mm. say well that's not my book you need wow. to go to Guns N' Roses drummer for that you know because <laughs> no disrespect but they don't have much more to talk about other than life on the road mm. they're the drummer in a big rock band I've got better stories and better content and I'm not ashamed to say it so I kind of wanted in in the intro to the book I kind of I said I want I didn't want to write a book I wanted to I wanted to write my book I wanted it to be about my stories and my experiences because I graduated in me so for me to write about the stuff that you know the journey that went along the way and then the interesting thing is kind of when I got into it I kind of became like you know it, it was it was um there's some stories in it, like, you know, I met Led Zeppelin when I was 15, you know, and I kind of, you know, I kind of took a paragraph of a short piece on Led Zeppelin and I sent it to a friend, an old girl who used to work with me, and, and um, she, um, on Facebook, and, and she just sent me a one-liner back and it was like, beep, beep, beep tone, it's like being in the pub with you, meaning mm. like I write, like I talk, you know. And then I went away and I extended that into kind of a... Um, a uh, you know a page and a half and 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 but the things that th- those things kind of helped shape me along the way because I didn't realize at the time that I was going to work in the music industry but it made me realize what it was like to meet your heroes so later on along the line when I was working with artists like the Police and Genesis and when you two became big you know if you kind of had some tickets left and you could go outside and kind of give a couple of kids who couldn't afford to buy them off touts like the greatest thrill of life. The tickets didn't cost me anything anyway, mm-hmm, but it was kind mm-hmm. of great to be able to kind of give back because wow, I was in a position, nice. you know, once I'd done the schlep, we'd given it to the, to the media if sure, you had sure. anything left. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the thing that, uh, it's funny because I kind of, I look back now, I mean, I'm 63 now, I look back and I'm, I kind of wonder if I was grateful enough at the time because mm. I kind of look back at it now and I get lots of opportunities to go and do some really cool things. I mean, I was invited to... Um, Brit Week in Miami in February by uh, by um, the people that were organising it. And they've done these things in Miami and Orlando and they're going to bring it to Tampa, actually, and it's in Los Angeles and stuff. And they were going to get Phil Collins because he just moved to Miami, but they couldn't get him, so they phoned me. And and, um, and it was great because I went down with and, and spoke at the Great Innovation Awards. And the weird thing about it, the tragic weird thing about it, was they booked me in December. The gig was February the 12th, and David Bowie died in January. Mm. So to do the Great Innovation Awards and have the greatest, in my opinion, innovative artist of our generation pass away in between, it's not like you need the material. Yeah. But also to an audience of people who can't. I mean, David Bowie's kind of always been there. So, you know, it's kind of like it, it was so. So what I'm saying is I got some kind of cool gigs along the way to talk about. And I realized it's like, you know, people approaching me and, and you know, we kind of live in an age of storytelling. And like I said before, I, I graduated in me. So it's not like me going, it's not like a comedian going to Vegas and spending two weeks there and going and watching all the comics and pinching all the material and coming back and mm-hmm. earning a living off it. All I'm doing is talking about my experiences along the way. And the book was kind of, the lessons learnt from rock and roll about risks and opportunities. And I've found that people listen to them differently if they involve famous people because they kind of, a lot of the people in corporate America and elsewhere that run companies probably grew up listening to those records at college. And I always think that there's nothing like music. You mentioned sport, no disrespect, but I was a huge Manchester United fan. I don't think nothing... Uh, brings you back to a time and a place and invariably with a person than music does and we're kind of losing a bit of that now in in you know where we are with you know the the music industry as such i mean whatever the, whatever that is that's what brought me here but i think um you know i mean you, you I, I can remember exactly where i was and when john lennon died and things like that you know so two clarifications on things that you said so when you said it actually came together quick after all bruce i wrote it in three months was it you initially wrote it in three months and then somebody had at it and hacked it up and gave it back and said, now clean. Like you mentioned, you know, oh, it sounds like you're talking in a pub. So, you know, OK, I'll maybe rehash it. Or, or was it? No, it was basically three months. Well, there was a few. I mean, I wrote it in English. So with my initial market being American, there were certain things I kind of had to tweak mm-hmm. for the American market mm-hmm. and such. But I didn't kind of. The funny thing is I didn't want to. I didn't do a deal with Amazon and people like that yet. I know a load of people have bought it through Amazon, you know. Um, but the thing is, I kind of, um, I had, um, like I say, a publishing company that kind of proofread it, but 
you know, that kind of... One thing that irritates me to this day is there's there's a, a story about the first time I saw David Bowie, which was at the, the Hard Rock in Manchester. The Hard Rock was a venue that opened where traffic played and Lou Reed and Bowie did the opening two nights. And when they came to edit it, they wrote David Bowie at the Hard Rock, lie at the Hard Rock Cafe. Mm. Like David Bowie played a cafe in Manchester. <laughs> it was a completely different venue. It was nothing to do with a burger bar. And, I, and not that David Bowie would have read my book, but, you know, I'd yeah. have been horrified because that reflects on me, you know. So I wasn't happy about other people. Like, nobody can... Uh, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but English is my best subject. So there's no spelling mistakes in it, and nobody can tell me anything about, you know, kind of verbs and adjectives. It works. It reads as a book. But I wanted it to kind of read like... I'm talking to you. So when you when you kind of read it, you kind of feel you're in there. So mm-hmm, if you did come mm-hmm. and hear me talk, I'd be the same person. Because, you know, I, I wanted to, to, a sense of excitement to come through when I was kind of writing. And I, I, there's, there's, a, there's a complete difference between writing a book and talking about writing a book. Because once I was into it, I got it completed. And we got it out pretty quick, you know. And, and I recouped, actually, because I paid for it. The publishing company didn't take anything. Mm-hmm, they were writing mm-hmm. their own book. And kind of wanted an association with me. So I kind of, um, you know, came to an arrangement with them and they and they funded it. And I paid it, I, I recouped like in eight days of sales, wow, I think, on wow. Facebook, on Facebook alone. That's terrific. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> the other clarification, uh, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way, it was just strictly a case of me misunderstanding. When you said they wanted Phil Collins um, and they ended up calling you, is it, hey, Phil Collins isn't available, we need to find somebody else? Or was it, we know that you know Phil Collins, can you call no, him it was, I, I was. I don't know if I was kind of second option or what, but Phil Collins basically got back with his ex, and she lived in Miami, so he mm. moved to Miami. And Phil was involved with um, a charity that's that's affiliated with the with Brit Week, but he just wasn't available. Okay. Um, so I, I have no idea why they, why they contacted me. Hey, I'm not complaining. Yeah. The, the thing is, it would have been... Because I worked with Phil in 1981 on the Duke album, and it would have been so cool if he'd have kind of even just turned up, because I'd have loved to see him and just had a beer with him. Yeah, absolutely. And say to him, sorry I kind of blew you out of the gig, man. You know, <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure I kind of his career's okay without doing brilliant. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, this is episode 129 of Now Hear This Entertainment, and I've been blessed to get listeners from 116 countries around the world. This show is geared toward not only fans of the guest each week and fans of, I guess you could say, good music interviews in general, but there's always an emphasis put on the listeners who are up-and-coming musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers, artists, who are trying to learn from my guest each week. And while I'm sure your book does some fun storytelling, it looks like you aimed at that same audience too, yes? Because on Amazon, it has your book in three categories, career development, vocational guidance, and business. That's really interesting. I have no idea. <laughs> Thank you for that, Bruce. <laughs> really, that's good. That's quite flattering. Um, it's interesting because, like I say, um, I'm, I'm a great believer in music and I find it difficult going to kind of music schools and talking about it because I did something for an audio engineering class in Tampa a couple of years ago. Not 40 kids in a room, you know, I just did the one-on-one like in the actor's studio thing. And there was a time when I kind of looked out the audience i thought well where are all these people who are paying like 30 grand to be educated going to get these jobs because where do you see recording studios where do you find record stores i mean it's a much changing business but i kind of when it comes to like up-and-coming musicians i mean i have great stories that equate to incredibly famous people like you two you two weren't very good when they began you know but we're talking about them later, aren't we? Sorry. <laughs> um, but it's belief, you know, and it, it's it's belief. And the, the thing is, if you if you're an artist and you get up on a stage, you kind of you have to kind of have so much belief that you can do this. Because, like any artist, you want to project what you're doing, your music, to as many people as possible. So, but it's tough. It's it's kind of you have to have almost like a relentless belief because of um, the way the industry is as such. I mean, like when when I was growing up, I mean. You know, if I liked an act, I bought the records and I supported them. I went to see them. I bought the next records. I yeah. wasn't alone in that. Whereas now, kind of, you know, you want a new shirt or a pair of trousers, you can't download it. You have to go buy it. But we have a generation of people going up that growing up, I think, that never had it to miss it. So mm-hmm. I kind of get really tedious about that when I kind of want to turn around to these people and say, do you know what you're missing? You know, because mm-hmm. I just worry where... I mean, Led Zeppelin, for instance, like... You know, they, they they sell more records to people who or did over the last few years to, to people who weren't even born when they split up. 
because those people were going into their parents' record collection, and it wasn't a bad record collection to go to. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, let, let's go ahead. Let's let's go back to uh, to the quote from U2's manager. As I mentioned, I'm sure the book does a lot of storytelling. So so let's hear one surrounding U2. But um, if you would along the way, just uh, if, tell the listeners about the work that you did with them, what your role was. Well, basically, my story with U2 is is kind of I um I worked for Allen Records from 78 to 80. Then we all got made redundant. I was on the road and Ireland hit some financial difficulties and they couldn't afford to pay a team on the road. You know, I was doing the radio and TV and press in the northwest of England. I got a job, fortunately, like an hour later with Charisma, working with Peter Gable and Genesis, which were at the time the, the biggest bands I'd worked with, apart from Bob Marley. Um, so when a friend of mine sent me a tape by this band um, and kind of with the, with the, the idea of me going to see them play in my local polytechnic um, the following week. It was one of those things where he, he was the kind of guy that got excitable about a lot of things. So I eventually relented and decided to go. And I went with a local DJ who was living with me at the time. It was my lodger. And we went to see them and they were third on the bill. And this was kind of 1980, I think. And, um, and they weren't kind of that good i mean bonner was kind of awkward and he was swinging from the rafters which is central eating <laughs> pipes which are burning hot adam looked like a complete dog um larry was a good solid drummer and the edge was good you know but it was kind of like you know like nirvana were in the garage you shouldn't be very good at that stage in your career but they mm-hmm. had so much kind of you know um enthusiasm and things and then they came out at the end of the night when everybody had gone like midnight or something to meet every single person who wanted to meet them and we right. stayed behind to kind of say hi and they were in awe of us oh my god the local djs come to see us they were really excited and and stuff and things but we went home and and um we kind of you know we woke up in the morning had some breakfast and we're still kind of thinking there's something about that band you know it's kind of what it is you know kind of and then we continued to talk about them and things and and then they they did actually sign to Ireland. Uh, but you two kind of, you know, I mean, there was the December that year. We saw them in the September, I think. The December that year, they played like 10 London shows in 14 days. Wow. So they hadn't really wow. toured or anything. And Bono had even come over to the UK to try and do the rounds of the record companies. So there's a real persistence story about you two. And, and, and nobody wanted to sign them and stuff. But I remember taking them to their first radio station. And, um, you know, they were like, Bono and the Edge were like these two excitable kids in the back of the car, you know, and, and we were driving in the pouring rain like two hours from station to station to get some little interview that went out on midnight on a Friday night <laughs> to a specialist. You know, they had the specialist radio shows in those days. Um, and I just pulled up and turned the windscreen wipers off for the engine. I just looked back to them and, um, and this is kind of educational for artists. And I looked around and I said, listen, guys, I can get you in here because of who I know. Um, only you can get yourselves back in here because of who you are. Because in the same way, like you present radio shows, I mean, you come in, I've got them in, right, because I have a relationship with the DJ. Um, But then that guy is the guy who's going to phone me up and say, hey, Tom, those guys are amazing. Anytime they're playing Glasgow again, bring them in, talk Mm -hmm. to them anytime. So it makes my job easier and it makes them understand. It's kind of what you used to refer to as kind of media training because you just taught him on the way in about who this guy is, what his audience is, you know, how influential it could be. Because, you know, I mean, you can get some artists who kind of, you know, don't perform well and then they get a clip round the ear because, I mean, they make my life a lot harder because you, you want artists to appear above being a catalogue number, you know, but they were really good at that, even to the extent of going to the pressing plants and meeting the people who were pulling wow. the records out of wow. the racks. I mean, what would that mean to some guy who works in a, in a warehouse all day, pulling records out, passing them up and mailing them to stores? And they how? don't become a catalogue number. They become real. Yeah. You know, I mean, impressive. yeah, they're going to meet the media and some of the, some of the record store managers, but not That's people impressive. Like. And it was impressive. There's a lot of things about them. I mean, I saw that band uh, play to 11 people in Manchester, Bruce, and four of those people were with me. <laughs> I mean, I've got photos on my Facebook page of them on my porch, you know. When my daughter is in the tour manager's arms, God rest his soul, he passed away like, you know, a year or so ago, Dennis Sheehan. His only other job was assistant tour manager with Led Zeppelin, and she's kind of about one or two. And my daughter's 34 now with two kids, you know. So like you it. look back I like fondly. I, I, what I love about it is it, it's kind of a band going through its apprenticeship and mm-hmm. paying its dues. Exactly. We were talking before about, you know, I mean, some of the things about, you know, what it takes to make it, so to speak is, you know, is blood, sweat and tears. I mean, mm-hmm. those things don't change. I mean, Zeppelin went up and down the countries of America and England in a crappy little van with the tour manager driving, playing every dodgy dive that they could. 
to build up a core fan base. You two did exactly the same thing. Great stuff. Great stuff. I am Bruce Wozniak, and joining me today here in the studio is speaker, author, music man, Tony Michaelidis. Check out his official website at www.tonymichaelidis.com. His name isn't quite as difficult to spell as mine. It's Michael with I-D-E-S after it. But of course, you can always look at the title of this episode and your listening device to get the proper spelling so as to check out his website. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Use the icons on his website to find him on those social media networks. His book is available for purchase on his website or through Amazon. And contact Tony as well to book him as a speaker for your next event. Be sure that you're also checking out www.nhte.net, as in Now Hear This Entertainment, nhte.net. For every episode of this show, we've got on nhte.net the full audio, plus the guest's photo, a link to their website, and quotes from the guest on each show. Sign up for the e-newsletter at nhte.net and subscribe to this podcast and tell others about it too. Subscribing is free, and it makes it very easy to get the show every week on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or by following on SoundCloud. We are thrilled to now be on Google Play Music too. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nhte.net to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and to follow on Twitter and or Instagram. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you, and please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. We've had a lot of great guests along the way so far. I'm going to name a few of them here shortly. As always, many thanks, of course, to those who are not first-time listeners. I very much appreciate your time and your interest and support. And by the way, whether you're going to look for Tony's book, and or other books, music, whatever, go to nhte.net and click on the tall Amazon banner to get there so that you can help this show in the process of buying whatever it is that you need from Amazon. Tony, I mentioned in there about you being available as a speaker, and we had talked before about your book being in categories with Amazon that imply your intent to help others, meaning this isn't a case of I'm retired, read my book, leave me alone. Uh, I, I believe I even saw in my research for today's show that you do mentoring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm my own worst enemy at times because it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'll sit in a pub with somebody and, and talk to them and kind of, you know, they. some people want to kind of, you know, sometimes musicians want to employ them. I just say you can't afford me, you know, I'm not being rude, but it's kind of like, you know, I said, I'm here. You're here, buy me a beer, you know. We'll sit down and have a chat with them like you would do on a on a social occasion. But the thing is, the the thing is, like going back to the book, there's kind of the, the music industry isn't a how to do business. I wrote a book about kind of you know growing up as a kid in the north of England and getting a job in the music industry. But I did a radio show for twelve and a half years at a really cool time in Manchester when Manchester was really prominent with a lot of the bands that were coming through the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and stuff. And obviously there's always been bands from New Order, the Buzzcocks and things, Simply Red, the Oasis. Um so I kind of grew up in a very like, you know, buoyant time, so to speak. And and I kind of, you know, I, I even set up a a promotion company based in Manchester when the record industry kind of, you know, moved to London. I mean, they wanted me to move to London to, to employ me at A&M. And, and when I accepted the job, I then set up independently. And I said, and the guy said to me, great, thank, I'm really pleased you're coming. When are you moving to London? I said, I'm not moving to London. I said, what do you mean? I said, why would I travel 200 miles north? But south to travel 400 miles north to do my job. I said, I'm setting up here and doing it here. <laughs> and they said, you'll have to move from the set. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> and it was weird because I kind of had taken a job, was going to go on my own as an independent record promoter. I had a child of two and another one on the way. And I kind of oh, was no. that bullshit. But I mean, don't tell me how to do regional promotion. These people had never been outside of London. They didn't know what local radio was. Mm. So I kind of set a precedent in a way. And I ended up with... If I say so myself, I created some amazing people who worked for me because I never employed anybody who'd ever worked for a record company. I just employed people who had that certain something, you know, and, and I gave them, I empowered them. I said, you know, I give you one piece of advice. Um, I don't want you to make me. I mean, two me's would be unbearable, you know. Go out and make <laughs> it your own. But whatever you screw up on, I'll pull you out of, you know. So that way, I mean, I created three people went on to form their promotion, own promotion companies. One guy went on to worked for Radio 1, the national radio station, for 10 years, and my intern wow. went on to manage Coldplay. Wow. So no record company taught me anything about that other than when I got my first job for £25 a week in 1974, I remember the guy that gave it me. I mean, being interested in music isn't a qualification for getting a job in a record company, for God's sake. Um, 
But I, I made it a point that, you know, that guy gave me an opportunity. And every day I went out and I was at my first shop at nine o'clock in the morning to prove to him that was the best decision he ever did, mm. giving me a job, you know. So that's what I mean about kind of, you know, I mean, like with any any industry, it's, it's applicable. But I think like with, um, you know, musicians and stuff as much as anything, building relationships, you know, you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down, mm. you know. So, you know, don't start getting kind of, you know, bolshy with people and stuff. And realising, you see, the interesting thing, Bruce, is the biggest artists are the easiest to work with because they know it's not all about them. They know it's about a team of people around them. And if you talk about, like, music and, and, and corporate America and companies, I mean, what a great lesson bands like you 2 and Bruce Springsteen are in how to keep your staff. I mean, Bruce Springsteen's had the same lineup for 40 years, except for the two that passed away. He's the boss and there's the workers. They don't want another job. He takes care of them. They love the job. And they're in it a lot longer than Joe Schmo who goes to work every day. Mm -hmm. And the same with you too, the same lineup. Because, I mean, you know, I know you just get married. Don't take this the wrong way. But it's <laughs> kind of like it's worse than being married, being in a band, because you go to work and you do your own thing. <laughs> and you come back and you have quality time in a band. You're 24-7 living, eating and breathing with these reprobates. You know, it's yeah, tough. Yeah. It's really tough. And you don't know what it's like till you get out there and do it. Well, with all the people that I'm sure come to you looking for help, uh, what do you consistently hear as the one recurring issue that aspiring entertainers are asking for advice on? Well, there's a general... I mean, I'm a great believer in do what you do best. I mean, it's kind of like... as a My job was to get records on the radio and groups on television, but I ended up, you know, um, starting a press company because Arista at the time came to me and said, do you know anybody who'll do who does regional press? I said, I'll do it. I didn't do it, but I knew a guy that had written a book and interviewed me for it and had written a couple of other books, one book on Marian Faithful and things off the back of it. So I phoned him up and said, listen, you know, do you want to come and, um, you know, start a press company out of my office? I said, I'll, I'll bankroll it in as much as I'll wait 90 days for the check. You can mail your records out of here um, and I'll just take a percentage to cover my costs, but you can work it out of here. And he went on, on doing that 25, 30 years. So I'm kind of, wow. you want a house build and I'll build your house, but I'm not a plumber and a lot, I'm, I'm not an electrician, but I know a man who can, you know, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So mm -hmm. the thing with artists is it's very, I mean, the thing about U2, were, they were kind of really good at the business of U2. And Bowie was another one. I mean, Bowie kind of managed himself, if you like, after because they had some bad experiences. You two had a great manager with Paul McGuinness from the start because he was he'd been to film school and he was kind of you know he knew what to do and he, he he worked passionately for the band. And you need to kind of tell the band what you're doing as such, but you need to kind of separate them so they get on with the artistic side of it. They should be just concentrating on writing songs and and not worry that the business side of Absolutely. things is taken care of. Because, I mean, it, it, it's kind of, you know, some things never change. Like, you know, anything that potentially attracts a lot of money attracts a lot of sharks. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like not a million miles from Elliot Ness at times, you know, and, and um, Al Capone and people like that. Because, you know, I mean, people, you know, Leonard Cohen is a accountant ripped him off and stuff, you know, he'd been around for 30-odd years. So... The, the thing is, it's important to understand the business of music as well as being in the music business. Um, and, you know, it's difficult because, you, you know, a lot of people kind of don't want to pay artists. I mean, that was the, the great thing back in the day with Peter Grant. He kind of changed the model with Led Zeppelin because in those days the, the promoter was getting like 90% of the gate. Mm. And he turned it round so wow. that the band got it. He wow. said, because 10% of Led Zeppelin is worth 90% of any other band. But <laughs> so he kind of changed the model by saying, no, we're not doing it. Didn't release singles, released albums. So, you know, I mean, you kind of... The, the record industry is, is... I'm kind of answering your question, but the record industry in, in the good old days was made up by music people. So Chris Blackwell, Herb Alpert... Um, Obviously, um, Ahmed Ertigan, you know, people who were passionate about music and believed in artists and believed in supporting artists. I mean, with Blackwell signing you too, he kind of, he signed them because they had, they had so much belief in themselves. He didn't kind of sign them because of how talented they were. He thought they were kind of a little crappy, a bit trebly. But the person that he'd employed as head of A&R to sign them, he didn't go above him and demean the guy's job. He allowed them to be signed, and he said, mm. "All I can do as the as the head honcho at the record company, so to speak, is believe in you and invest in tour support and things." Um, in those days, but I think um, 
with, with with artists and stuff, it's it's kind of you can sit here easily and say don't give up your day job, you know. But I mean, you've got to understand that that you know that that kind of intense work ethic means that it might be hard for relationships and kind of normality because of you know. I mean, you've got to find somewhere to rehearse and um, some of the questions bands ask. I, I mean, one thing I'll say to people is like, um, where do you want to be in twelve months? And it's like, where do you want to be in two years? Where do you want to be in five years? And you kind of don't get an answer. I said, well, if you don't know, how do you expect anybody else to know? Mm, you know? Wow, wow. So it's kind of, you know, you have a business plan, but it kind of is not a business plan. It's mm. just a plan of what you want to go. And it is kind of, you know, I believe in, in you know, if you, I mean, here's a little different because people go and play beach bars and they live off tips and stuff. And then they end up doing Jimmy Buffett covers and they can do it <laughs> when they're 60 or 70. <laughs> but it's kind of, a different lifestyle. It's just not getting a job. It's just enjoying yourself. But, you know, if you if you kind of you can't go and play in Texas, you know, because nobody knows who you are. Right. If you right. pull a few people in Ebor and, and wherever, you know, and you do some gigs around here, you can only do so many. But, you know, if you build, like with social networking, if you kind of build relationships with, with like a band in Texas and then you do a gig here and you've got a fan base of 200 people who come and you invite them down and they get in a van and come round and they sleep on the floor at your place <laughs> and then they replay the gesture so you go up and play a gig in Texas. Because what's the point of you playing in Texas? Nobody knows who you are. Nobody's going to come and see you and it'll cost you a fortune. So, you know, that kind of thing where you kind of build up like, um, you know that story I told you about you two meeting every fan after mm-hmm, every show? Mm-hmm. Well, you think of it now, a band can can go back after a gig and go on social networking and they can kind of interact with people. And people like John Mayer did it, for God's sake. It doesn't have to be a, a lesson for, for up-and-coming bands. But you can go and kind of... And, and it's the world. It's global. So you can kind of send messages to some five girl fans in Japan. You go to bed and you wake up and you've got 50 girl fans in Japan because <laughs> they all tell their friends. Yeah, and uh, listeners, um, check out the episode from... Two weeks ago with Eve Sellis, she's a singer-songwriter in San Diego. She tells a cool story on that episode uh, about Chris Isaac doing exactly what Tony is talking about. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is, take it from me, it goes a long way if you can properly say and spell challenging names. You will turn people off quickly if you don't take the time to learn a pronunciation or spelling. Ask someone else who knows the person before you guess at how to pronounce their name. Keep in mind that on the spelling issue, it could even be something as simple as John being spelled without the H. Don't risk a potentially valuable contact because you got lazy on getting their name right. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. How about that? Helpful? There are a whole bunch of tips just like that over all the prior episodes of this show to make it easy for the listeners out there who are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers to get the tips in one concise format. There is a Bruce's Bonus Book, Volume 1, and a Bruce's Bonus Book, Volume 2, for purchase in ebook format giving you all the tips from episodes 1 to 40 and 41 to 80, respectively. Just go to www.brucesbonusbook.com for online ordering and instant delivery. There have been a lot of guests on this show who have talked about the way that the industry has changed over the years. Heck, as recently as last week, on episode 128, singer-songwriter Tony Clark, who is actually based in the UK, he talked about it. We can't have someone like you on the show Tony, and, and not ask for your thoughts on the big changes in music over the years, the way it's consumed, etc. Spotify always comes into the conversation, the decrease in sales of physical CDs and so on. Your thoughts on all that? Well, my thoughts on it are particularly scathing because, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, like I say, I'm forever grateful to have an opportunity um, to kind of, you know, live my life as an extension of my hobby and, and you know, and, and love every minute of every day and you know you've probably worked hours probably on like five bucks an hour the amount of hours i put in you know but i love every minute of it but the thing is if you look at the record industry i think like i don't think they ever it took them about 30 years to realize there wasn't any going to be anybody any as big as the beatles again those days were kind of gone you know but the beatles and bands like that in those days the pink floyd with dmi they made so much money 
in those days that they could invest in up-and-coming talent because mm-hmm. apart from anything, it was tax loss, you know. So huge revenues coming in and, and again, the publishing money that they would make kind of in a piece of the action because the record companies had a lot of it sewn up and a lot of the artists were kind of, you know, a bit kind of glazed and didn't know any better type thing. And then the 70s was kind of an extension of the 60s and a lot of kind of whether it's hair bands or major artists that became like the Black Sabbaths and... The uh, Elton John classic example and stuff that kind of the 70s was kind of a halcyon period and then people like you know Bowie and people continued to sell records and then the 80s um, again kind of you know there was the, and I think it was the late 80s or something then kind of CD came along you know so the biggest expense in making a record is recording costs because in those days you would get like the $300,000 advance Mm. And, you know, the the artist wouldn't know it, but you'd spend your rest of your life paying it back. Mm-hmm. Every cab ride, every haircut, every video <laughs> came the word recoupable. Um, but you could make a record because you had to pay for a studio, which involved a recording engineer. You had to mix a record and you had to physically pay for studio time and it wasn't cheap. So you couldn't make a record like that. And of course, people were making records on computers. Then all of a sudden a new format comes in, which is CD. And the record companies go... Then to the artist, right, with a record that's already made and ask him to take a reduced royalty, which Mm. is kind of nothing short of thieving, (laughs) right? So they take like £2, $2 off what they're paying them, and they have no recording costs, so it's like, oh, my God. You know, and the money, because of course the lawyers and the accountants started to run the record companies (laughs) later on, you know. And then kind of like, the record company has always had an air of invincibility. And the way I talk sounds quite scathing about them is a lot of good people lost jobs mm-hmm. i mean when i came here it was kind of the record industry was falling apart around me and i hadn't done anything wrong so i came and did what my heroes did reinvent myself do mm-hmm. my ziggy stardust because mm-hmm. um, it was never going to be kind of like it was but of course the thing is then like when you know napster came along i, I worked for a company called magic Leap, which is trying to changing you know the way computing's going to be forever, you know, and it's kind of like I found the next U2, but it's not a band. And the CEO of this company is exactly the sort of guy that should be running a record company because when Mm. Napster came around, he wouldn't have, like, closed them down as Big Brother. He would have said, hey, let's have lunch because then Steve Jobs came in, tried to negotiate with the industry and make them realise that they couldn't sell albums because, you know, they were so used to selling a wad of songs of which nobody liked all of them, (laughs) but it was like, you want more than a single? You've got to buy this. Yeah. And he made the single available at one twenty nine, then 99 cents. And iTunes came in because the record industry was so arrogant, they thought, oh, the internet, that'll go away. You know, <laughs> and that kind of didn't go away. And that's what kind of changed the entire business because people didn't have to go and buy albums, right? Record companies then weren't making as much money. They didn't have money to invest in. I mean, I come from a school of artist development, took me nearly three years to get you two on the radio, you know, constantly kind of schlepping around and, like, peddling your wares, so to speak. Um, but those kind of... The, the, the investing in an artist... The record company's not going to invest in an act if they're not going to get a return because they're all kind of... They have kind of shareholders now mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be a nice little return unless, you know, you make money on it. So there was much less money being spent. And then I did work with Simon Cowell, obviously, and, um, and I could see that, you know, that kind of disposable kind of music was coming along because I was um, around when the Spice Girls, I worked with Simon Fuller who managed the Spice Girls, mm-hmm. but I worked Annie Lennox, not the Spice Girls. And Simon was a genius. The whole girl power thing was his idea and stuff, you know. Um, and as a marketing exercise, it was brilliant. Um, and of course it became global. It came, you know, but they became a massive kind of pop act. And then Simon kind of wanted to kind of emulate that with the bands that he was on. He signed a band in the UK called Boyzone. Mm-hmm. Which was, again, mm-hmm. like, you know, you get kind of five guys, you're too fat, you need to cut your hair, you need to wear this. Um, and then, you know, here's the person making the video, this is the producer, it's on our label, and this is the, this is the manager. So they pieced together the whole thing. I, I kind of, it worked differently with the monkeys. They were kind of disposable pop, but they kind of, you know, they had kind of quality songs. This thing kind of was middle-of-the-road stuff that churned out. But you kind of... I mean, I remember working Britney Spears' first record, you know, and it was kind of pop socks and pigtails and all that. And you're actually marketing an artist and trying to sell records to a bunch of girls who would have been in the same class as her, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is kind of a successful formula in a way. 
And then, of course, Simon Fuller again changed the model again with American Idol. It was even Simon Fuller's idea to put Simon Cowell on it because mm. Simon Cowell didn't want to do the American thing. He said, they're not going to like me. You know, I knew <laughs> Simon Cowell would have worked in America because speaking as an Englishman, there's something about Americans that like English people insult them. You know, I don't know if you remember <laughs> Faulty Towers and Basil Faulty. Yeah, you know, yeah, rude, yeah. rude Brits work really well. So Simon Cowell came on. And the, the interesting thing about American Idol is, even though the first two of the first three artists have become the most successful still with, with Kerry uh, Underwood, and Kelly Clarkson. I mean, you know, the kind of bus conductors from Alabama and stuff, they kind of never made it, you know, they won mm -hmm. American Idol. But the interesting thing is, you put a bunch of people in a car park, whoop, a bunch of people in a car park who all kind of just want to be famous, right, and you weed them out and you put, they put them on the TV and they have the kind of elimination process. And then you get the audience to kind of vote for their favourite artist. And that goes on, and all this talk of record calls and stuff, they even making a fortune off the telephone calls. It was, it was the, it changed television forever, you know. It was the most successful television programme in the history of American television, you know, like a bunch of kind of wannabes. And then they go through each round, right? This is the American Idol model. And then at the end, you have a final, and you ask X million people to vote for their favourite artist. And then you put a record out by somebody you, they've already told you that they like. <laughs> I mean, my God, what a model that is. What record company can do that? So we're putting this out because we know you love it. And all those people, because they have that kind of affinity with them, if they're like, I voted for them, I'm going to go and buy it. Yeah. And then they become like, you know... It's like an assembly line or almost exactly. like, like, a, like, a no, like a drive through But there's no longevity. I mean, Carrie Underwood and people became artists. I mean, they kind of approached it differently and and they then they lasted. But the it's kind of... It, I call it disposable music, you know. There's nothing wrong with pop, which is popular one minute and then gone the next. But the thing, the lifeblood of the record industry was always back catalogue. I mean, Island Records didn't have too many hits, but they always had Faircourt Convention, John Martin Free, all these records that somewhere over the world somebody would be mm, buying them, mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. kept selling. And Dark Side of the Moon, I mean, I know that's kind of the upper end of it, but it just churns on and on. More people kind of discover it. And like now with the Gold Station, so much of it kind of gets played. But record registrations don't kind of break artists, and record companies don't invest in artists. So the the... You know, I mean, in this year alone, I mean, Prince and Bowie dying. We'll never have artists like that again. I mean, let's get real. Don't even think about it. It's just not going to happen. I mean, they were, they were, they were always kind of successful and 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 relative in in popular culture. You know, but you know, technology has made it so much more easier for practically anyone to yeah. record. Nowadays, heck, someone can stay at home and record into their laptop with GarageBand and consider themselves a recording artist. Well, so, but here, here's the question that I'm getting to: since there is such easy access into music, should we be surprised that some of the old, old acts are still hanging around? I'm, I'm thinking of Cheap Trick. I'm thinking of ZZ Top. I'm thinking of Yes. Well, they kind of become their own tribute bands, you know. I heard a great story about Mick Jagger the other day about how kind of when the Stones kind of come out and. You wheel them out again to tour because they kind of go on forever. You know that Jagger goes and watch a watches a tribute band in Paris um, because the singer's got the movements better than he has now. So he goes to rehearse and watching. It's a true story. Yeah. It's a true Apparently, story. Yeah. Wow. I love wow. it. That, that's that's amazing. Oh, but boy. the thing is, I mean, you, that, that, yeah, that's an interesting point, Bruce. But the thing is, it's like, yeah, with all this thing, so I could make a record. I can't write. I can't sing, and I can't play. But I can make a record. Well, there's something wrong with that. You don't go and turn out for a football or an ice hockey team if you can't play mm -hmm. the game. Mm -hmm. You don't get on the game because of technology. So I believe kind of that, that you know, that kind of is restrictive for, for artists because if they just have nothing other than talent, it's not enough. They have to kind of find a way to kind of break through. I mean, if you come from a wealthy background and you know, you've got a home to go to and stuff and you can Taylor go and, Swift. and play and <laughs> stuff, and, but a lot of them kind of, it's, it's not a great job. But that sounds like a downer. I don't want to say that, you know. <laughs> I am Bruce Wozniak, and joining me today here in the studio is speaker, author, music man, Tony Michaelidis. Check out his official website at www.tonymichaelidis.com. As I mentioned before, 
His last name is Michael with I-D-E-S after it, but you can just look at the title of this episode on your listening device to get the proper spelling of his name so as to check out his website. He is also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn specifically. You can use the icons on TonyMichaelitis.com to find him on those social media networks that I just named. His book is available for purchase on his website or through Amazon, and contact Tony to book him as a speaker for your next event as well. Be sure that you're also checking out www.nhte.net, as in now hear this entertainment, nhte.net. For every episode of this show, we've got the full audio on nhte.net, plus the guest's photo, a link to their website, and quotes from the guest on each show. Sign up for the e-newsletter at nhte.net and subscribe to this podcast and tell others about it too. Subscribing is free and it makes it so easy to get the show every week on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or by following on SoundCloud. We are thrilled to now be on Google Play Music also. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nhte.net to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and to follow on Twitter and or Instagram. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you, and please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. We've had a lot of great guests along the way so far. As always, many thanks, of course, to those who are not first-time listeners. I very much appreciate your time and your interest and support. And as I mentioned earlier, whether you're going to look for Tony's book and or other books, music, whatever, go to nhte.net and click on the tall Amazon banner to get there so that you can help this show in the process of buying whatever it is that you need from Amazon. Tony, we haven't talked yet about the point in your career when you decided to leave Europe and take up residency in the U.S. Walk us through that phase, if you would, please. Well, I kind of, um, it was kind of, you know, when when the kind of, um, I mean, like I say, I, I actually worked, you know, Britney Spears' first record and a band called Westlife and Take That, who were the kind of, main act in the UK um, and then NSYNC here, you know. Um, and I could kind of see what was coming along and then kind of Simon Cowell's kind of escalation, if you like, and the type of records that the, the, the music industry were kind of looking at, you know, because there's a certain kind of lemmings mentality effect, you know. If, if it works, you know, let's kind of emulate it and make it all kind of the same, you know. Um, so I could kind of see what was coming, and, and, and BMG, which at the time was my major contract, which was the whole of the, of the Arista and RCA catalogue, which gave me everything from, our, from Dave Matthews and Johnny Cash to David Bowie, Whitney Houston, you know, TLC, Aretha Franklin, and kind of everything in between, you know. So the point being that, that you know, yeah, I could have kind of replaced the acts, but I couldn't have replaced, um, you know, what it would cost with the overhead because I mean I kind of ran an expensive operation because my um, my theory was kind of if we got busier I mean would be to get more people in and more people were wages and a large larger premises and you know I just spend like $30,000 a year mailing records you know and stuff mm. um, but it was a different time you know it sounds like you know but I mean in those days you my my telephone bill was like you know, nearly a thousand pounds a quarter. Nowadays, you kind of all you can eat packages and things. It was different. <laughs> it was expensive, but you got paid pretty well for doing it. But uh, it, my in a kind a way I'll, I'll sum it up is my heroes when I grew up as a teenager. You know, yeah, there was music and stuff. We were footballers, and I never wanted to see the heroes that I idolised players that played for Manchester United, who I remember scoring great goals. I didn't want to see them playing in lower divisions. Mm. So pretentious as it sounds, I kind of wanted to retire at the top. I wanted to kind of retire having done what I'd done and not scrape around picking up what was left. So I made the decision. Um, I mean, I've always kind of... I come from an industry that, you know, you make it up as you go along. And I've always, like, flown by the seat of my pants. It's kind of... You, I mean, nowadays there's no such thing as a safe job. But in those days, it's kind of like, here's a record, get it played. If you don't have get it played, you don't have a job. But that was my life all the time, you know. So I kind of... It's a kind of perverse adrenaline rush if you like because you know I used to I always got excited when records got on the radio but people didn't play my records because they liked me they listened to them because they respected me you mm -hmm. know I had a job mm -hmm. to do my job was to report back to labels artists managers about what they thought and I never had a problem going up to them and say listen we can't get arrested with this record mm -hmm. it was a great story that I'd 
when I was working in Matchbox 20 and Michael Lippmann, who was the manager, I told him, I said, if you can't get arrested, you'll be the first to know. And he loved it because mm -hmm. they were so used to kind of patronising sycophantic record companies. Like, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do that. And then they go away and they get on with the Madonna record. So I came to, to do what my heroes in music had done, particularly David Bowie. You know, he split up the Spiders from Mars at the peak of their career. And I was devastated as an 18-year-old kid. But I understand 25 years later when I was working with him why he was the most innovative <laughs> artist of our time because he was constantly reinventing himself. So I, at the turn of the millennium, I ended up here in 2004, I kind of wanted to kind of reinvent myself. And I, yeah, nothing lasts forever. So you kind of think, well, you know, if you're a professional sportsman and your knees go and you're in your 40s, you're not going to kind of play at that level. But you'll mm -hmm. get by, you'll do mm -hmm. something. And I'm fortunate to be working with a, an exciting tech company which has a music component, which is kind of equally freaky because that was kind of like, where did that come from? Which is kind of, I think, payback for all that blood, sweat and tears back in the music <laughs> industry. But, yeah, I just made a decision with, with no coercing by anybody. And I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I, what do you do? You know, I kind of, you can't go to the job centre for a job and say, well, what do you do? And you tell us, like, well, I don't know what we can do for you. And I didn't, no disrespect, I didn't want to go and work in McDonald's or anything. <laughs> and I'm loving it now. I'm kind of, I'm at a stage yeah. in my life where, you know. No, no tagline imp intended. <laughs> With what? <laughs> I'm loving it. That's, uh, that's McDonald's. Oh, sorry, tagline. yeah. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> uh, Tony, I mentioned before that uh, that last week's guest, Tony Clark, is based in the UK. We also had guests from the UK on this show on episodes 119, that was Carl Lindquist, uh, episode 116, Chris James from The Scheme, episode 98, Luke Potter. Tony, from here in the US, it looks like Europe, the UK specifically, though, is the place to be for music, bigger than the US. Do you agree with that statement? And if so... Why well, Why is that? Why, why, why is it so much bigger over there? Well, I come from Manchester, so I kind of... I, I grew up on that, and the, there was... the Factory Records, um, you know, I worked with them for 10 years, and, and they were, you know, they were instrumental, in, and they would, they would put the money back into the city. They opened a nightclub, kind of like Danceteria, that, that was funded by New Order and their management and stuff, and people would come up from London to do it and stuff. But all the management companies ran the operations from there. But there's kind of... Uh, Tony Wilson came up with this slogan, which which um, I've got it on a, on a bag, actually, in my, in, in my home, and it says, we're from Manchester, we do things differently here. Mm -hmm. And... There's a great history behind, obviously, the explosion of Mersey Beat and stuff in the 60s and we, the Beatles and the Stones. But not only that, it's kind of like, you know, we forget bands like the Kinks and, you know, and stuff like that. There were some great bands that, that have always come through. And, and there was, there was a, again, there was a lot, certainly in the north of England, you know, there was kind of... I mean, I remember Bono's story and Adam. It was kind of like they both lost their mother at age 13 so it was kind of they had to do this you know mm. so it was kind of it took them away from what am I going to do in my life I'm going to kind of be an angry child growing up wondering why his mother's been taken away from so the band was kind of the family that kind of they inherited so to speak but I think there's there's kind of um it, it it's hard to I mean you know there's I mean Florida is a bigger landmass than the UK you know, there's, there's, and there's thirty odd million people here and sixty million living in England, but the thing is, there's kind of there's there's a, a, a creative energy that kind of you know where I was, there was a lot of creative people. There was just there wasn't it was wasn't just the bands. I mean, if and and that was even the difference between Manchester and Liverpool because the Beatles couldn't wait to deflect to London as soon as they started to become successful. Brian Epstein moved them down. But Manchester bands were kind of oper were, were managed and, and run from Manchester, you know. And then I think the thing is that they, they're always curious. And, and the great thing about the UK is it's always been kind of a trendsetting market. If you had a hit in the UK, you could be guaranteed a release in the US. You yeah, know? because what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking of is, and, and we've talked about this here at the studio off the air, is how many times you turn on 
I, th- I think it's now called MTV Live. It had been called Palladia for years. You turn on Palladia, and every concert that they're showing is always from Europe, or it's from you know the UK specifically. So you never turn on Palladia, and they're showing a concert you know from Arizona, you know of some of some great U.S. band. So um, we're we're almost out of time, but I just have two final questions for you. I do want to give you the opportunity to, to storytell one more time. I had mentioned in the intro about your having been a publicist for a David Bowie tour, and, and you've mentioned his name several times during this conversation. Um, let's, let's just hear a, a little bit about that specific well, experience of, of being the, uh, the, the publicist for his tour. It, it's a great ending, actually, because David Bowie kind of is kind of, you know, the soundtrack of my life. Because, I mean, I went to see David Bowie in The Spiders from Mars at 18, and I physically watched him split the band up in front of me. The band didn't even know. He said, it's not only the last, last night of the tour, it's the last night we'll ever wow. do. Wow. And then I had to drive home in the pouring rain from London and, and kind of thinking, how can you do this to me? You know, how can you <laughs> break the band up? Where my next David Bowie record? So I was angry, an angry kid, you know, and then kind of 25 years later working with him. But I'd, I'd been promoting his records for a few years with RCA, but promoting his records was just mailing them out. And David Bowie didn't get a huge amount of airplay because he'd go through different periods of his career making different types of records that were more kind of esoteric than radio-friendly. Um, and then kind of the, the publicist in London, who I'd worked with anyway, um, called um, Lipsy Mead, um, Roxy Mead phoned me up and said, listen, we're not going to be able to do the Bowie, Bowie tour. You, are you gonna, do you want to do it? And it, there was kind of a pause. And I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> and... David likes to meet everybody. So the next night I went and meet him at the next gig that he was doing and, um, you know, got the go-ahead, so to speak, the next day. She said, David, yeah, he really likes you. You know, um, listen, go to Liverpool tonight. It's where the band's playing. And she gave me the contacts of the tour manager and people to kind of link up with and stuff. And, and then she, um, she said, um, and then, you know, I'll call you and we can talk about money. And I said, you want me to work with David Bowie? And she said, yeah. And I said, and you're going to pay me. <laughs> so it was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like a dream come true. But the interesting thing about Bo, it's like I said before, quickly about, um, you know, he was so fantastic to work with, so humble, so grateful. I mean, little stories like when he was playing one gig, I went to a record store with a friend of mine that ran and picked up some drum and bass CDs, you know, and, and as he was coming off the bus and arriving at the gig, I just went up to him and said, David, you're probably sick to death of this lot, you know, I said, here's some stuff to listen to, you know, he said, oh, thank you so much, you know, and he kind of, and he went backstage with him, man, and as he was coming onto stage that night, he walked up to me and gave me a big hug and said, thank you so much, Tony, I was, I'd listened to a couple of them, they're really wow. good, you know. This is a guy that could have walked up to any record store in the country, anywhere in the world, for that matter, with a counter, with a pound of CDs like this, and bring out his credit card to pay them. They go, no, no, take it. We'll take yeah, it, Bowie. Yeah. But the humility and the graciousness of the guy, and that's, that's what I mean about the, the the true like rock star and a sense of humour, like you wouldn't believe. You know, it's just I, I was listening to records, listening to CDs, driving between gigs. It had that much of an effect on me. You know, that's great to hear. And uh, listeners, it's it's not as detailed, but. Uh, do go back and listen uh, for the for the second time on this show. I had as a guest Wendy Wagner, who is one of the singers on the current Joe Walsh tour. Uh, this was uh, back on episode 123, and, and she talked about uh, similarly how great Joe Walsh is to work for. And I don't think people think of the Joe Walshes and the David Bowies of the world as a, as a quote-unquote employer. Um, Tony, last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, with all that you've done, I would be remiss if I didn't close with a question about the best advice that you would like to leave the listeners with in terms of those who are up-and-coming performers. Well, I had a little quote I wrote in the book, which was kind of, if you believe it enough, it won't be hard to convince others. And I don't think that was kind of just me, right? I think subliminally that was kind of the effect that, that you know, artists would have on me. Because the thing is, like I said before, when you kind of stand on that stage and you wash your dirty laundry in public and you have to believe that you can do it, there's a very quick Elton John story about that where it was Anderson Cooper was, was interviewing him, actually, and um, he, he said to him... Um, he said, Elton, what are you going to do when this is all over, when it ends? And he looked at me and said, that's not going to happen. And that Elton John believes that. That's never going to happen. He's never not going to be Elton John. Don't ask me mm-hmm. a stupid question. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's what I mean about kind of that. And Simon Cowell, when I first met Simon Cowell, he'd been bankrupt twice. He was living with his parents and he was 30. So wow. you kind of think wow. if you're having a bad time, you think, oh, my God, the most famous man in the world had been bankrupt twice. Yeah, he had that kind of relentless belief that he could do it. So he kind of pushed forward and then kind of now, yeah, I've said some things that, you know, 
I've worked some of the worst records in history that he released, but of course you don't hear about him. But do you think he's worried about that? You know, me saying that. I mean, I've got the greatest admiration for, for the guy, the fact that he just believed Fantastic. in himself. And, Fantastic. and people buy into that belief. So I, I just think you really have to persistency, belief. And the other thing is, quickly, is is the things that you kind of should alert as, as a child, which is respect, integrity, and trust. Mm. You know, kind of those things. Assemble a team of people around you that you'd quite happily have in your lounge with your family, you know, because those are the kind of people that any loose cannon is going to kind of... There's been so many kind of um, bands splitting up from one, you know, and we could mention the Beatles on that one, but we won't. <laughs> well, I was going to say, any loose cannon is going to blow the thing up. Oh, yeah. Uh, wonderful way to end the show. Tony, this has been terrific. I thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, that will do it for this week's episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to author, speaker, music man, Tony Michaelitis. Be sure to visit his website, www.tonymichaelitis.com, and then engage with him on social media. So that means follow him on Twitter, connect with him on LinkedIn, find him on Facebook as well. For that matter, tell him that you heard him on Now Hear This Entertainment. Remember that you can contact Tony to book him as a speaker for your next event. And of course, do purchase his book. It's called The Insights Collection, Insights from the Engine Room. You can purchase it on TonyMichaelitis.com or by going to NHTE.net and clicking on the tall Amazon banner to go purchase it there. Don't forget to visit www.nhte.net and sign up for the email newsletter there by simply putting in your email address. And of course, please do subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends about it. Give us a nice review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio too, hopefully accompanied by a five-star rating. That really does help the show a lot. If you are listening on SoundCloud, remember that you can like and they call it repost is how you share episodes there. And you can also follow on SoundCloud. Let's get your feedback on the show too. Post your comments or questions on the Now Hear This Facebook page. There are links to it and Twitter and even the Now Hear This official YouTube channel on nhte.net. Plus, there's a link there to this show on Instagram. Or send us an email. The email address is on the contact page of nhte.net. We have been recording this show at the great facilities at Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out online on their website at www.cbpro.net. That's CB as in Crystal Blue. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. (laughs) 